Welcome to the Televerse, the podcast just for TV. Because it's great, we're lucky they make so many fine programs to see. Your hustle and Kate like to debate the merits of all that they've seen. Comedy, genre, reality, drama, and anything that's in between. Welcome to the Televerse, less of the show. Hello and welcome to the Televerse. This is Kate Kalzik, joined as ever by Noel Kirkpatrick. Noel, how's it going? I'm in Georgia, so it's going muggy and warm, and yeah, it's it's. I I did not miss humidity, Kate. <laughs> well, but also Twitter tells me you're you've been at least one bookstore, so that's good. I'm going today to the bookstore. Oh, okay, so yeah, no, I'm very excited um, to go to the bookstore after we record a little bit. So I'm I'm looking forward to that. Um, how's your week been? It has been good, um, but I'm behind uh, again. And I look forward to not being behind again, which will happen soon. But uh, but I'm getting ready for our next recital, our studio mm-hmm. recital. So it's been a lot of like trying to frantically email back and forth and make sure everybody has their rehearsal with their accompanist set up, and it's just a, like getting everybody that last push. And then everybody, the we just were over auditions. They all had their auditions for next year. All the high schoolers and the eighth graders have their auditions in. Oh God. So their auditions, Noel, are in January and the last week of January, the first week of February for next year. Okay. Isn't that insane? That is insane. Yeah. That's and then they work. have solo and ensemble either a week or two weeks after that. And then now we're getting ready for the our recital. And then they have auditions for youth orchestras in the beginning of April and May. It's just like... A nonstop deluge of auditions. It's just I, I I just want to do scales. I just want to do technique and scales and arpeggios and like basics and get everybody back on track with that instead of constantly doing a last push to a performance. But that's what the summer's for. So these are these are the things that's what that the summer's for. <laughs> yeah, that's what the summer's for. Except for all of my middle schoolers who are have their auditions in the fall, and any of the kids who are doing IMEA, which have those auditions in the fall. And it's just it's just like a nonstop. I feel like an elementary and middle school and high school teacher talking constantly about uh, uh, teaching to the test because that's yeah. what I've been doing for months. So these are the things that populate your life when you are a teacher. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, at least you don't have to do like IEPs or anything. I don't know what that is. Oh, it's like a um, document that's used for in special education classrooms that tracks progress as that kind of a thing but there were ah. like really extensive documents and i know multiple people who have worked in special ed and ieps can take up a lot of time um That's fun. but it's also probably similar to like plotting out recital plans and that kind of a thing so you just have yeah. your own version of it i do have my own version because we i take uh, copious notes for each student for each lesson and post them um, right yeah. yeah so but it's i mean i'm sure that the ieps are you know, because that's a formal document yeah. that that's not just for yourself and the student. That's you know, yeah. a much more labor intensive thing. I'm I'm certain, but yes, the, the, peek into the window of 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 your te- your local music teacher if they're you know if they're anything like me. This is what they're spending all of their free time doing when you're not paying them. So it's uh, be kind to your teachers. Uh, also, Always be, be kind-, kind to your teachers. <laughs> Also, be kind to each other. Uh, it's been a stressful week, um, but the um, 
the, the the fun thing for me has been tracking the violining. There's been some violining in my viewing this week, both uh, Umbrella Academy and Documentary Now. So I will talk about that when we get into our week in TV. But uh, we are going to try to keep things on the shorter side today. So we should uh, get into our week in TV. At the end of the show, we're talking about the Lorena documentary, um, which people will know about because it is co-EP'd by Jordan Peele. Uh, but this is a four-part documentary on Amazon, um, which, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm seeing a few people talk about, and there's a lot of reviews, but it, it hasn't seemed to catch on like some of the other um, documentaries about the 90s have recently, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, I was, I was like, I was looking for discussions and didn't see any, and I was like, oh, okay, but like you, I noticed that there were a number of reviews posted after I checked it on Rotten Tomatoes, but yeah, there just doesn't seem to be any conversation about it, which is interesting, I think. Yeah, we will talk about that at the end of the show, but for now, <laughs> should I play the the Cinderella, the Elaine Stritch song, or should I play the Christmas Carols on Cocaine song for, from Documentary Now? Um, Elaine Stritch always. Always, right? So this is Paula Pell. Always. Um, in the Elaine Stritch role <laughs> from this week's episode of Documentary Now, uh, cast, original cast album co-op. Enjoy. We'll be right back. Look at me, Cinderella. Stroke of midnight, footman gone. My glass slippers, now they're Merrill's. Prince Charming, he's just run. Spell is broken, unenchanted. Sheets are soiled. Linens she picked up at Bloomies for a marriage that I spoiled. I gotta go. I gotta go. Okay, okay. Uh, hold a moment. I said, hold a moment, please. Benedict, I've been here for 12 hours. That was, I'm guessing, After Midnight, the Paula Pell song from this week's Documentary Now, uh, original cast album co-op episode, which is just so delightful. I'll talk about that in a bit. But first up, we have the penultimate episode of, I think, of of Top Chef. I think. I think that there might, I think they may be doing 15 this season. Are they doing two more? Oh, God. I think they're doing, yeah, I know, the season's going on forever. (laughs) We have milk that finale. Like, when they sent five people to China, I was like, okay, that that seems like a lot. Usually, they don't they do four? But um, anyways, this week's episode of Top Chef is Holy Macau. Or holy Macau! Um, then I'll talk a little bit about the Drag Race premiere uh, for season eleven. Whatcha unpacking? Uh, and then a little bit about Umbrella Academy season one. I've only seen the first two, so I'll talk about those. Um, the Noel has some thoughts on Blackish Black History Month. I'll talk about documentary now, and we'll round things out with drunk history femme fatales. So first up is Top Chef, and what did you think of this? You know, the first episode here uh, in the finale. Uh- I thought it was fine. Um, I liked the visit to the market out, um, but mostly I was like, why are we in Macau right now? <laughs> um, it just seemed like a weird departure after being in Kentucky so long that we're going to go to Macau. And so that was why I appreciated the approach that a couple of the chefs took to being like, okay, well, we can still do sort of our flavors 
with these ingredients here. And I really like that approach, especially like um, Kelsey's decision to use like black IPs for a New Year's um, celebration type thing while still incorporating Chinese flavors. Because black IPs, in case listeners aren't aware, are a really common um, ingredient in a lot of New Year's uh, recipes here in the States, particularly in the Southeast and the South. And so I really liked that incorporation of melding those two traditions together into sort of a hodgepodge, which did sort of work as well with the um, implication of like the market being predominantly Portuguese, but also based out of China and based out of Hong Kong. And so I liked all of that as well. So I appreciated that melding of a melting pot sort of an approach, but mostly I, I was just like, I don't know why we're in Macau, apart from the fact that they want an exotic location and also to get tax breaks. Well, I think it's mostly because Graham Elliott has a restaurant there, right? That's what it feels like, at least. Yeah, no, that's definitely what it feels like. And you know Gail wouldn't have made people d- d- done this. <laughs> um, the, the Yeah, like you said, the market is great. And the watching the chefs meld these new flavors, like especially, uh, you know, Kelsey, I think, does does a lot for her... I was, I talk about this in Top Chef, or sorry, in uh, uh, Drag Race, and I don't know if I'm using this term right, because originally the term is referencing the the interactions between the contestants. But I think about how the contestants on these reality shows are warming up to the camera and the audience at home as the, part of their social game. So mm-hmm. Kelsey is winning the social game <laughs> in this episode it, with well, her Kelsey talking Kelsey was a fan favorite too, wasn't she? I very possibly I have not been yeah. following it. Okay, I think but she when was. She, yeah, when she's like, uh, "I'm gonna use this knowledge either some point in my life because it's amazing, or like ten minutes from now." Uh, so I'm like really taking everything in. <laughs> uh, it's, it's just you you, you appreciate a, a canny can, competitor in these kinds of shows. So yeah. she she earns a lot of points for herself there. And uh, watching the uh, you know like I I like. I I enjoy all the chefs that are in the finale here, but like when when the first protein taken is scallops, and then they're like, "Oh, these scallops are different." Oh man, it's like, yeah, of course, yes, they are different. They're they're large, they're giant scallops. They're gonna be different. They're, it's a muscle. And they're a much bigger animal. So like, of course, um, yeah. But but everybody did a good job, which I always appreciate. I liked that they kept the that they showed the the dragon dance thing lion um, dance lion, lion dance. dance sorry thank you no problem and um the uh the, the most of the food seemed really really good i i did not appreciate the chefs talking back to the judges yeah uh, i thought they did it in a pretty respectful way especially the first one because padma was not clear in what she was saying um in her judging so yeah that was m- less of, a, of an issue when Eric did it, but like when Adrian did, it's like you're not. I mean, I, I I can't imagine the urge to do that is very strong. It's very very strong because you're very sensitive, and um, like most of us would be very feeling very vulnerable in that moment. And so, like the the impulse to be defensive would be very very high. Um, but she doesn't come across well when she's doing that so I, I feel a little bad you know it's, it's unfortunate when i when usually when the contestants do that you know um but yeah you you made a, a dish for 200 that was one bite 
that, that when they want that, that is a separate challenge. That's an amuse bouche. That's like they talk about only wanting one bite. So um, that's the level of nitpicking they had to do to send her home. Yeah, and I think that's appropriate. Like when I liked the whole concept of uh, Adrian's dish, but then when it's presented, it's just like, oh no, that's that's no. You need at least two solid bites for something mm-hmm. like this, and you just did one, and that's that's going to get you sent home. But oh, such a good amuse bouche entry. Um, I also ch- chalk a lot of their punchiness up to just jet lag. Probably I have that's to assume true. that's true of like we've we we got here you let us sleep and then you took us to a market (laughs) (laughs) and then we had to plan food and then we had to cook all this food we don't know where we are (laughs) you can also just see the uh the magic of tv editing in looking at how uh the judges are talking about i want to say it's sarah's dish when they eat it they're like this is yeah this is delicious and then she's in the bottom and the judging and they're like only saying negative things when the only thing they were saying when they ate it was how delicious it was. Yeah. Um, so, you know, hopefully as these chefs watch the episode back, they can appreciate that you did. A, I mean, they, they they came up with stuff and they judged it for the judging. But really, you all did a great job. And like, it's almost arbitrary who gets sent I- home. So. I do feel like it is increasingly, especially with this group, it's getting a little arbitrary about who goes home, uh, since they just, they have to pick someone. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Yeah. Anyways, we will, I'm sure, chime back in after the finale, whether it's next week or the week after. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see what, what these chefs have. I, I mean, I would be fine with just about any of them winning. I like them all, so. Yeah. Yeah. My money is probably on Michelle, mm-hmm. but we'll see. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we also had the premiere of Drag Race this week. Watch Unpacking, and my review is over at the AV Club. And the so I like this episode. I thought they they have a good set of queens, and I will be curious your thoughts once you've had a chance to see it, Noel. Um, you and your person. But um, for me, the the number one takeaway is that there were there are fifteen queens, and they did a regular ninety minute episode. Um, so without that's commercials, that's an hour. Yeah. And they have the entrances and they have a mini challenge and they have a maxi challenge and they have a celebrity judge that they bring in to interact with the queens. So like, that's too much. Yeah. And, and it, they have actually, I think, a really good mini challenge and a really good maxi challenge. And so time has to come from somewhere. And spoiler alert, it doesn't come from the celebrity guest judge. So uh, and they also bring back several alumni for like little things, too. Mm-hmm. So they just they needed a supersized premiere. Um, and I don't know if one didn't want to do that, maybe, especially going from All Stars, which doesn't have Unpacked, to going to, to regular Drag Race, which does. So it already has a half hour after show, you know. Um, yeah. But it's, you know, it's a shame because the for the mini challenge, they have to do a photo shoot with one of the uh, Drag Race alums. And okay. you barely get to see the finished product to see like who can actually like stand up to these other more seasoned queens or at least more more seasoned on drag race like who like in who's an actual contender and who just completely spun out of the water they show you each uh, photograph but you don't really get to look at it and there's no feedback they just announce who the winner is um so i would have liked more time with that to really connect with these queens more and then for the maxi challenge they have to take a trunk uh 
of materials and garments from different queens. Um, so like, uh, like they have Valentina and Sasha Velour and Alaska and Sharon Needles and like all these. So there's a trunk for each of them. And then they have to take those materials and make a look. So either they can wear something that's in there or there's fabric, there's bolts of fabric. They can cre- sew something. Um, but the challenge is to make something that matches their aesthetic using materials that they didn't get to pick and um that would have been that's such a great challenge you know it's an excellent challenge and you start off with a crafting challenge right at the top which i like right off the top which is great you know that's terrific and i don't yeah like i said i'm looking forward to your thoughts on this because i know that you, you really get into that part of it as, as do i um which is something you don't get to see on all stars but um because it, it just requires them to distill their look and their brand down really quickly and efficiently and the ones who are in the top really do that and do a very good job um and maybe even have a nod to the original queen's uh like aesthetic in their look but it's still their look and there are a bunch of them though that really it felt like they were wearing just what that other person would wear and uh I don't know how many of them actually crafted something and how many just like took pieces that were in the original and wore them. I'm mm-hmm. not sure. And you know why I'm not sure? Because there wasn't enough time given to this challenge. <laughs> Cause it's such a, it's such a terrific challenge and there should have been more discussion. There should have been, you know, like cut the mini challenge or cut the guest judge like bit or like, so this could have been an excellent challenge instead. It was just good. Uh, it was well, you know, it was an interesting challenge, and it was uh, the 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 queens did a good job at in the end. I think on the runway, at least uh, a lot of them. Everybody was pretty much fine except for a couple, and uh, and th- that's you know that's a good show in your first episode, especially when you have to sew. So, um, yeah, it was a little frustrating because it could have been like a great premiere, and it was just it was fine. It was good. I enjoyed it. I like the set of queens though. There's there's a big range. There's people from 21 to 40. Oh, there, good. There are three international queens, or queens who were uh, born in another country and then moved to the United States after growing up for at least some span of time in that other country. I think it's three. It might even be four. And uh, yeah, there's uh, there's quite a few pageant queens, um, at least one comedy queen. There's some mus- musicians, and like it's just like a, a really wide array of different kinds of uh like niche groups or like like specialties i guess because they're all like i'm sure very well rounded or else they wouldn't be they wouldn't make the cut but they they have different aesthetics and they have different approaches so it it should be an interesting season i'm really looking forward to it yeah i am too i just since i'm out of state to this week um i elected not to watch it without my person so i probably won't get to watch it until monday night uh, when I get back, so womp womp. womp but I'm excited. Womp. I'm excited yeah. based on what you just said to watch this. Yeah, it should. I mean, I look forward. Like I said, I look forward to your thoughts, and we'll talk more about next week. Um, but we will not talk probably more about Umbrella Academy season one, which I watched because of the violin. <laughs> so Ellen Page does play a character who plays the violin, and honestly, she does a pretty good job. Um, when they show her. They also shoot it very intelligently. They stay a lot of close-ups and then a lot of long body shots where they probably have a body double. Um, but the trouble is that, like, if you, if you muted it, it would look fine. It wouldn't be great, but it'd be fine. You know, you could get away with it. But then they show her playing, like, the like she sets her bow at the right at the beginning. She sets her bow 
at the at like the lower half of the bow of the frog um and the and the lowest of the strings and then they start playing fan of the opera in the upper register <laughs> it's like what are you what are you doing but she just put if you knew you were going to edit this opening sequence to the fan of the opera which starts and the the player starts in the third position on the A string and then goes to the E string, like the highest strings. Why did you tell her to put her bow on the lowest strings? That doesn't like it's just so there's such a disconnect. And so like while the faking is is okay, um, they did a really bad job of matching how she was faking to the audio. So I don't know why it's like that's not the fan of the opera is not a hard song to fake. It's not like it's a crazy you know thing. It's quarter notes, eighth notes. It's really famous. Like, yeah, it was really odd. I wouldn't be surprised if if Paige has some background in violin or like took some lessons or something to get ready for this because sure. there is some like the physicality is not bad, um, but it's just really jarring to to see like. Like, the notes are changing really fast, and she's doing a long bow. You know, like, there's that kind of stuff, where it just clearly doesn't match at all. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it was interesting. Uh, it was interesting. As for the actual show itself, I, I did enjoy the what I saw enough. Um, it's kind of wacky. There's some fun stuff. But um, not enough to, to, like, compel me to keep watching, especially when I was behind on so much other TV. I was like, okay, well... Uh, for the podcast, I need to have seen all of Lorena. I need to catch up with these other shows that I was behind on from last week. So I watched two from um- Umbrella Academy. Maybe I'll circle back around to it, or maybe I won't. But um, you know, there's some there's I can see why people like it. I can see why people don't like it. Um, there's some really like kind of heightened characters, and there's some silliness and campiness that will either turn people off or get people excited. Um, so. It was like a time traveling fifty or sixty year old who's who jumps back into the body of a teenager. So it's like a you know it's the old the old man and the young body kind of thing, which is which which can be fun. And there's some mystery and and everything. And they have you know there's it's a good cast, so they they do a good job with it. But it didn't grip me enough to compel me to keep watching. I didn't feel like I had to you know stay in it. So we'll see if I get back to it. I expected to have a stronger reaction against it from some of the other reviews I saw. So maybe something kicks in at a certain point. Um, or maybe I was just so distracted by like watching the, the violining <laughs> that I was missing <laughs> other things that really turned people off about the show. But for me, I you thought wanted it was to have violin rage. I, yeah, I was just so hyper-focused. I wasn't paying attention to everything else. Um, I will say one other thing, though. Okay, so Ellen Page is a violinist, um, and she is a, at least based on the opening, she's supposed to be like a concert violinist or someone who is a significant soloist and performer. Mm-hmm. And she also is, they show her teaching a lesson. Um, and some person she's never met before, uh, a dude, shows up at her door and they they make some like you know back and forth comments about uh you know she's a little older than her usual students by like 20 years you know um but this so she she doesn't she doesn't know this guy ahead of time clearly she like he left a message and or or, or something and he just like shows up for a lesson without a violin and she lets him into her home which okay you shouldn't do that but okay, 
And then she lets him use her violin. Her violin we just saw her warming up with. She doesn't have another violin, like a backup violin, that she lets this stranger who's never had a violin lesson hold and use. No. She lets him use her violin. Does this sound as insane to you, Noel, as it is to me? Um, I mean, it does seem a little weird. Like, I I don't know why you would let them use that, but I also, I know that musicians can be very particular about their instruments, and letting someone else use their instruments seems like a... It just seems like it would be a weird choice to do that. Yeah. Also, she lives in sort of a shabby apartment. She's clear she doesn't have she hasn't taken like family money and stuff from the eccentric billionaire who raised them. Uh, but if she is any level of serious soloing or a high level performer, that instrument is at least like fifty thousand dollars. Right. Yeah. Would you let someone you didn't know drive your fifty thousand dollar car if they had never driven a car before? No. No, you wouldn't. You would say, okay, don't touch, just don't touch anything. Let's talk about some basics. Like, oh my God. And also just like, it's, it's your baby. You just like, you don't, you don't do that. Uh, so it was very, uh, yeah, it was, I was, I was watching this. It was like, don't let a stranger you don't know into your home, especially when they're clearly a creeper. Uh, and, and secondly, don't let them touch your violin. <laughs> so that was another thing that just really took me out of it from the violining side of things. Um, uh, it was funny. I was talking, I was at Starbucks the other day and I had my violin and the barista or the person who was ringing me up mentioned Umbrella Academy. Cause like, Oh, what's the, what's your like, violin? And they, Oh, have you seen that, that show Umbrella Academy? They did like, Ellen Page plays the violin in that. I was like, yes. And what was up with that creeper she led into their house? And so like, we, t- we talked about that a little bit. I was like, yeah, she should not have let that person play her violin. It's like, yeah, that seemed like that was weird. So I've been, I've been actually having a little bit of, uh, violining talk, uh, a TV violining talk. Uh, it's been spreading out to my daily life, which was fun this week so yeah apparently there are other people watching umbrella academy besides vince and the you know us or me i should say uh and so that's interesting so maybe more people are watching it than i would have thought but that was that was entertaining and more on violining in a little bit but first you're gonna tell me about blackish um and i will say i caught up with blackish uh, up until this episode i haven't seen this episode uh oh boy you were not kidding those last two episodes were bad um is 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 black history month better um not super better it falls into an issue of uh dre getting frustrated that the uh school that the twins are going to basically just recycles the same old same old uh black history lessons of harriet tubman frederick Douglass, and that's about it um and so he's he storms into the school and there's a whole riff about you're supposed to email us before you come for a meeting, Mr. Johnson. <laughs> that was the deal. And he's like, I never signed that deal. So the, his interactions with the school is funny, but it basically amounts to Dre charging into and forcing the school to let him do a presentation about a, a significant black person of his choice. Um. And he settles on Lewis Latimer, who's a good choice. Um, for those of you who don't know, Lewis Latimer is, worked with Edison quite extensively and actually had a patent on the carbon filament that makes 
um, light bulbs work. Um, so good choice to have, but as it becomes a discussion about trying to highlight as many different people as possible and the family discussion broke, breaks out and across of like, all right, well, who's really worthy of being discussed and should we only be focusing on those in the past? What about people who are pushing it forward today? Um, or why aren't you, why, why aren't any of the dudes ever suggesting any other women, type of thing so there's there's this element of wanting to highlight as many people as possible through sort of a very special episode lens while dre also feels like belittled by the fact that he doesn't know who some of these more recent folks are um and so there's it's fine but it also just falls back into this fold of dre knows best kind of thing um that by the end, he's accepted that he doesn't know best, mm-hmm. but it's still we're still in that cycle of things even now. Um, what kind of what I do sort of encourage you to watch the episode for is they do little cutaway PSAs uh, involving Octavia Spencer explaining who some of the historical figures are, and in a "that's a black person you should know" segment, um, which incorporates like the high school the twins school principal who's the first black person to run this be the principal of the school and it turns out diane really looks up to her and both ruby and Bo really dismiss this as a choice which is super weird to me um but they mention her in through the psa and octavia spencer gets to sh- say the line Shivs are shivs is cool, damn. Um, because <laughs> the principal apparently has like this huge drawer of contraband that includes a shiv. Um, so Octavia Spencer's having a ball with the cutaways. Um, and that's the reason I think to watch it. But generally, it still falls into that thing of Dre knows best, but in at least this episode, he acknowledges that he doesn't know everything, which is refreshing. Uh, but yeah, it still doesn't feel as deeply essential as Blackish did for the first, for basically up until this season. Yeah, um, that's interesting because I really felt like Bo and Ruby were off in the women driving episode too. Mm-hmm. And you say, you know, in this episode, Dre by the end accepts that he's wrong. Yeah, but doesn't he do that like every episode this? this season he does that a lot where he makes some blustery irritating pronouncement and then learns his lesson by the end and then resets for the next episode where he has not changed or adjusted his relationship especially with junior we were talking about with the recent episodes um and just learns the lesson all over again and the fact that once again there's no like like that Ruby and 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 uh, and Bo seem out of step, out of character. Um, is yeah, that's the. I, I mean, I'll, I'm gonna watch this episode and we'll see see what I think of it as as I see as I watch it. But that is a big old red flag for me because that is not the first time that has happened this season, and that, that really feels like a shift. Yeah, I think it is, and I think Bo's just going a little broader than she has in the past. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's weird. I'm just like I was saying last week, it just feels significantly less essential. And like, I only sort of circled around to it this week because 
of like timing out what I was watching this week. And it just went, oh, I've got space for this. So I'll go ahead and check in because I knew you we had texted a little bit about the last two. So I figured we'd at least have a little conversation. So, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Um, Our next episode is Documentary Now, original cast album co-op. So, of course, I love this. I'm at the center of the Venn diagram of people that this is for. And and I know that all of us who are in that Venn diagram feel that way. It's like, oh, they made this episode just for me. How awesome. Um, So... For let's start with the the interaction I had on Twitter about this, which was interesting and lovely and surprising. Um, so I was watching this episode, and one of the songs during one of the songs they cut over to the violins because okay. So for those who don't know, there is a documentary from the seventies about the making of the cast album for Company by Stephen Sondheim, and so they like rented out the studio space and they like recorded for twenty four hours straight, which is insane, and to they you know that they got the the album made and they have this documentary and so this is parodying that um in this case it's uh the um it's like steven something else oh no it's not steven it's like simon something is the 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 sondheim surrogate and that's played by john mulaney and then renee lee's goldsbury is one of the leads so of course she's fabulous people will know her from the good wife and you know hamilton um and the the whole cast is is terrific richard kind is in there paula pell um but uh they have you know because it's when they made the original documentary, they were actually filming this. They were actually shooting this. So they had a full orchestra. So in this, they have a full orchestra as well. And during one of the songs, they cut over to the orchestra and um, the violins, like two of the violins in the back have this really awkward bow holds going on and their arm motion doesn't seem right. And then the camera kind of like pans down. There's four in the back and four in the front, I think. And you can't see the the one on the either end, but you can see the two middle ones and both of them, their bow hold looks just really awkward. Um, and then the camera pans down to the front row and they're all playing really naturally. So I, I like this is, and, and the rest of the musicians all seem great, you know, watching this where I had no doubts that they were actually like hiring musicians. So I tweeted about it. Like, Hey, does is that like a shout out to the original, company documentary because this is the kind of show that would do that you know <laughs> and as i was watching it for the first time i didn't know if it became like a, a bit later on um and it doesn't and so then one of the i think one of the composers for this uh reached out and was like uh no no is there something wrong they're all musicians what's is there are they not playing what's got what's wrong <laughs> i was like no 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 they they just like their bow hold is all weird, because uh, like because it's like stiff and but apparently they weren't playing live, so they were miming, whatever that means. Uh so because like I could have sworn I saw the bows on the string, but um the singers were all that was recorded live, um and the uh, but the musicians were recorded later in a soundstage and layered in. So I okay yeah so so. And the the person was uh, Eli Bolin was uh, lovely. I was like, oh, that's really interesting. Okay, I was ex- I was like waiting for defensiveness. I was like, oh no, oh no, I didn't think somebody involved in the production would actually care about my tweet or see it. Um, <laughs> but he was lovely, and um, and, uh, so, and it just shows like I would never have thought about that aspect of it. It's like either you, I would have figured you're recording everybody live or nobody live. 
Um, so the fact that they did record the voices live, but that they didn't record the orchestra live is really interesting. And I'm sure if I was a wind player, I would have seen differences in the embouchure for the players if they're not actually playing, you know? Yeah. Um, but uh, the strings did a very good job on the whole. Um, so, yeah, that's another element or layer to recording this, you know, making this kind of episode. But it was just, it's so funny. It's so funny, uh, Noel. And anyone who's a Sondheim fan probably already knows about this, but if they aren't, they should watch it. Um, the the parodies of the songs, the song that we played um, going into the segment is the Elaine Stritch kind of character, played by Paula Pell, um, singing a song about... Um, it's like she's going home or she's like leaving and it's after midnight and you find out later in the episode that she's been having an affair with someone who's the, who lives in the co-op. She doesn't actually live there. Um, and so like that, that later you get the context for her song, which is all about um, it's after midnight. She's still Cinderella leaving the ball, but Prince Charming just turned back into Tom or something like that. It's about being, um, uh, and the song is called, I gotta go. Um, mm-hmm. and the, the, the bit in the episode is that they do 27 takes of it and she's got to go to get eye surgery. <laughs> she, she gets more pissed off, um, each time they make her do it. Um, so yeah, it's, oh man, I just, it's really, really funny. And, and even if, you know, cause I haven't seen the original documentary, but the interactions of like the, the singer, the performers, the, uh, with the, the orchestra and with the con- directors, like, um, the Sondheim character comes over and does an extended thing with one of the singers. Uh, you've been doing a thing horribly wrong for three weeks. So I thought this was a good time to tell you. Um, <laughs> that word that you're saying ruined. Yeah. No, that's not how you say it. It's ruined. <laughs> And so he's getting her to the, so that it'll rhyme better, basically. Um, There's only one way to say that word. It's like they do this whole extended bit. You can just watch the actress who's just, like, clearly furious with him for, first of all, not telling her three weeks ago. And also, like, this is the moment that you're going to do this. This is the moment you're going to come over. And, Yeah. And they also start the episode with uh, announcing to the cast after the the first fabulous take, the show has been closed. And so you don't like, you know, wait till you're done recording to tell them maybe. But that lets them know you got savaged in the reviews and the press and the show is over now. But we're still going to record for another day. Um, it's, <laughs> it, it's it's highly entertaining. Uh it's it's like it, it won spoiler alert, it won my week in TV um and it's gonna be one of the ones I remember at the end of the year it's just delightful and the, even just for the seventies fashion and hair it's worth watching so yeah I loved it it's one of the most unbrand things of course I loved it it was made for me <laughs> it sounds like it yeah also uh, perhaps made for me this week's episode of drunk history femme fatales and uh they did two segments the first on matahari the second on murderous row murderous row which is where uh that was the inspiration the real life inspiration for the musical chicago um but they they i saw the the murderous row half on uh youtube before i got to watching the whole thing and they buried the lead because that one is good but the matahari one with vanessa hudgens is amazing it's so good um real good i was unaware that she'd been on the show two times previously um and she's just so she's such a pro but i also now want her to do a drunk recounting herself she would be great she'd be so good she would be so good 
And um, I just think it would be really funny. But no, you're you're absolutely correct because I think that the Madi Hari one is really sort of the one that steals the show. In part because Hudgens is really good, but also your point of Dermot Mulroney is also very good. <laughs> in, <laughs> as le dude. Um, it's very, very funny, and he's he's going over the top in a way that a number of I feel like a number of the actors in the re- historical reenactments sometimes do, but he's really going for it, which I really appreciate because it's it fits in really nicely, which with that whole persona of a French double agent sort of thing, and it's just really, really good. And he's he's deep in it, Kate. He's so deep. Um, <laughs> That it was just, it made it really funny because I feel like Hudgens is also doing really great stuff here, but it's, it's a much quieter sort of performance compared to Mulrooney's, even though they're both just miming voices. Um, but Hudgens is just a little quieter. Um, but she's also like really in touch with the narration in a way that I feel like a lot of other people tend not to be. Um, you can just feel her really capturing, um, Sherlyn, what's, I can't remember her last name. Um, I want to say Bridges, but I don't think that's right. Yeah, I didn't um, write down, she, but she's, she's terrific. I've, I've seen her in a bunch of things, so it's fun to see her pop up as a drunk historian. Right. So I think that she really taps into the narration really well, um, which is something that's a struggle with the murderous row because you have two narrators who are both very drunk, (laughs) (laughs) but delightfully so. Um, So I I just it's really good. And I was really glad I carved out time to watch it because I was just like, ooh, femme fatales. I want to watch this. And then it was just like delicious payoff after delicious payoff of oh by the way no it's not just vanessa hudgens we also have like bell and malin ackerman we've got everyone that you love noel just come and watch <laughs> <laughs> yeah indeed yeah no the whole the whole it's a good ensemble and yeah you're right about hudgens and i don't know how many times we need to say this but vanessa hudgens is a goddamn star mm-hmm. and I am like, obviously she is that to a certain segment of the population and the viewing audience. Like they'd be like, yeah, duh. Don't we all know this? But overall, no, a lot of people don't respect her. And I in like they should because she's really, really good. And she's shown herself to have the chops in live performance, in theater, in, in these these live musicals like. Again, she forever has props for going on and doing Grease live, like right after her dad died, and crushing it. By the way, um, so she like she 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 can back it up. She's not just some like starlet who, you know, is gorgeous and was cast in a teeny bopper thing with High School Musical, and that's why she's famous. No, she's got the goods, and I keep waiting for her to get the right vehicle that will earn her the cred with the mainstream audience and with like the set of critics who seem to be in charge of deciding who is a serious performer and who Mm -hmm. should, who should be taken seriously. Um, And it's, I mean, it's not only a bunch of old white dudes, but it is a lot of that. Um, And they're not watching the things that she's doing apparently, but um. I hope she gets the right project because that's so much of what it is, is do you 
get the right project for you, the right role that lets you show everybody what you can do. Um, because she's, she, she's very, uh, she's just so comfortable on screen. She's a very engaging, warm presence. She brings a lot of humanity and fun and energy to Matahari. Um, I, and I had not ever heard Matahari described in this way. I don't know how, how accurate it is. Usually they do a pretty good job on junk history. So it's probably not, completely out of nowhere um but she you're right it's a much more natural performance and she's our she's our way in so that that allows mulrooney to just like go ridiculous yes yeah because he's not the center central figure he's the boogeyman of that story so that allows him to be more over the top and it really matches very well but no she gets she's just because she's so natural um or she she conveys that you can't be natural and get the specifics of the this timing down right Right. like because it's not natural timing (laughs) due to the due to the booze um but she she replicates that she she gives a feeling of of that ease and and relaxed uh sort of delivery while catching all these little beats um yeah different people are like there's a bunch of celebrities who now come on to drunk history six seasons in um and some of them are really good at this and some of them are just good actors you know but they don't quite have that je ne sais quoi she nails it and um yeah she also should do a drunk uh, like she probably doesn't want to. I'm sure they would she already would have um yeah. if she wanted to. But um yeah, no, she's she's really good. And the um I was surprised to not like Jane Levi uh Levy and um Mae Whitman more cuz I both I enjoy both of them individually, but I think the double drug doesn't work that well. Yeah, it doesn't. So I think that you know like the I get the idea and the concept, but I don't think it really lands and like there's been some people who i was surprised to not like more on drunk history and like like uh rachel bloom was one mm-hmm. where she was fine but like you know you if you're if you're if you if you if you're a um a sleepy you know sleepy drunk yeah <laughs> you gets, shouldn't be doing drunk history you shouldn't do drunk history it doesn't work you, like we they like giggly drunks and happy drunks those are the ones that work that work best for this which show which is why i can't do drunk history because i'm now sleepy drunk <laughs> yeah it's like a glass of wine i'm really comfortable <laughs> <laughs> yeah um so this is a fun episode though definitely and um yeah now i just gonna add that to my like my the secret vision board of of Hudgens doing doing a drunk historian a drunk historian bit or um or just like you know it's like I'm reminded of Charlize Theron who had to like put a like ugly up her face for people to actually take a second look at her as an actor you Mm -hmm. know like is she gonna have to get do something like that before they'll you know or, or what's what's the name of that that actress on Twitter's like Natalie Walker, the one who does those amazing short videos of uh, audition segments. Like, I'm the person who's there to get in the way of the two symmetrical people falling in love. <laughs> you oh, know? yeah, 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 yeah. Like, I'm reminded of that kind of stuff, too, where it's like getting cast in the, the Oscar bait role where you're just like the concerned wife so that people will actually take you seriously as an actor um because the choices that she's made have all been really interesting and fun you know 
So she's certainly one that I watch for and is a def like we watched that horrible Netflix movie <laughs> <laughs> that she almost saved <laughs> just on sheer star power alone. But uh, better roles for Vanessa Hudgens universe. Make it happen. Okay. Um any other thoughts on drunk history? Or if not, what wins your week in TV? Uh Speechless had a really good episode this week, um, in which Jimmy and um oh dear. Maya um, interrogated Jimmy, uh, sorry, not Jimmy, uh, JJ's new uh, girlfriend through a ridiculous game of like revelations that's cobbled together by three other different board games that Maya just made real quick. Um, It's very funny and very silly and it's a solid episode, but I do think that just the Vanessa Hudgens portion of Drunk History wins my week in TV this week. But And we already know what won yours. Yeah, but I need to watch that because I... I felt bad because as soon as you said that, I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. This was the new game episode of Speechless that I had heard so much about. Yeah. Um, so It's yeah. very funny. Yeah. Yeah. Looking forward to that um, when I get a chance to, to, to catch up with it. Um, but no, documentary now. I mean, like, it's just it's so it's so good. It made me so happy. Yay. I'm going to watch it again probably this weekend. I'm going to, like, sit my musical theater participating for decades father down and be like, we got to watch this. Just <laughs> just like, just like, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. Well, now we'll take a break and come back with a very different conversation for our Spotlight segment on the four-part Amazon documentary, The Reina. This story was irresistible. What did he do to make her do something like that? This was a modern love story. Boy meets girl. Boy falls in love with girl. Boy marries girl. Girl cuts off boy's penis. The interest level was huge. Court TV is bringing the proceedings into millions of homes. People were like, that's crazy. This story was irresistible. Everybody was looking to get an interview. Guilt or innocence will come down to whom the jurors believe. What did he do to make her do something like that? She wanted me to hurt. That's why she did that. She is a jealous wife whose American dream has been destroyed. This trial had it all. The defense says the years of abuse put her over the edge. She was way too scared to leave him. He was very dominating. Physical abuse, sexual abuse. <laughs> we had found multiple witnesses. I saw him push it against the wall. Did you ever forcibly have sex with your wife? I thought it was kind of stunning. We don't need a judge or jury to tell us whether or not Lorena is telling the truth. She said, my husband says, if I leave him, he will kill me. There is a battle of the sexes. What it meant in 1993 is not that different from what it means today. We were being entertained on the fodder of someone else's suffering. It's still going on. I didn't choose to be in the spotlight, but there's no going back. That was a trailer for the Amazon documentary Lorena, which is uh, following the story of Lorena and Joey Bobbitt, which people will know from the 90s. And uh, as, as like 
Man, I forgot. I mean, because we were kids at the time, so yes. forgot is the right ten. word. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, like, back to back, these different, like, there was a lot of tabloid stuff going on in, in the, the early 90s, man. Like, yeah. Uh, so the story that people heard if you were a kid in the 90s, like we were, um, was that uh, Lorena Bobbitt uh, cut off her husband's penis and threw it out a window. Um, and then, and you know, they, there were various... It was just in the news. There were various trials and stuff, which we weren't following, I'm guessing. No. Um, and uh, then, and what was the, you know, this this is a, it became a punchline, because of course it did. Um, but the question was like, why would you do that? Well, you know, like, did she just snapped? Um, and then that became a sort of a, uh, a way to talk about, well, an easy punchline for comedy um and but a way to uh, like a lens to to talk about gender relations and uh power dynamics in the united states um what i of course as a kid wasn't thinking about was the through line and that's what i think this documentary does a good job of really capturing from the uh anita hill um and uh clarence thomas hearings and then you've got this and then you've got oj not long after, um, like the, like as as part of a larger continuum. That seems like this documentary really is interested in giving this story the weight it deserves, in giving Lorena, uh, her like a a spotlight, and and really examining everyone involved in this as much as they can, um, without like with this new lens and this approach to gen- gender dynamics and power, um. That we're reexamining at this stage in the the current you know set of years because this is this probably took a while to make but this 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 show is interested in putting it in into a larger context discussing like how did this get examined at the time how would we look at it now how have things changed how have they not um, was it successful for you was this is this like should people watch this. Or is it just like, you know, another straightforward retelling of 90s? No, I think there's I think that there's reasons to watch this. And I think that the decision that uh, the director and the writers and the executive producers have made to frame this in a more historical sort of context is interesting and probably the best way to sort of approach this uh, topic because on kind of a whole, this is something that could probably have been done in two as opposed to four hours. But by putting it into a context, and I like your thing of a continuum, sort of a timeline of events, including you mentioned the Need Hill and OJ, but they also draw like a quick line, very, very purposefully draw a line to the tail tail hook scandal that involved marines and uh u.s uh naval officers with um prostitution and sexual abuse um which is an appropriate line to draw because they do in turn make a sizable deal out of john wayne bobbitt's association with marines being a marine and so it does a good job of drawing connections but also putting those connections into historical perspective of yes, this is something that happened in this maelstrom 
of uh, suddenly being able to pay a lot more attention to these sort of tabloid sort of stories. So you have the rise of the 24-hour news cycle with CNN, and they need to fill time. Um, Tabloid markets um, have sort of expanded, but also as they sort of make clear um these stories are becoming national news now as opposed so something like um uh, i think it's u.s news and world report um that almost had this as their cover story but naturally got subsumed by nancy kerrigan and tanya harding and that aspect of it of like, all right, our media landscape is shifting to where this is something that is sensationalistic enough that it's drawing attention from all over the world, but it's also drawing so much attention to the wrong sorts of things. And what does that mean for us as a culture? And I think that the the series, more than anything, does a really good job of exploring those concepts and how the media environment of the 90s led to Lorena Bobbitt sort of fading away, as it were. And John Wayne Bobbitt's laughable, horrible, terrible um, claims to fame just keep trying to fall, fail upward, basically, and never quite getting there, and also just being truly terrible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I mean, and that, that, you know, in this continuum, I think you can put the Nancy Kerrigan, Tanya Harding thing in there as well, because that absolutely is like a pivot to a different narrative so easily, like described as well. This one, like uh, other figure shaders, just went crazy and decided to beat up this other person for no reason, just like this one, like which is yes, a totally exactly. different situation, but feeds the same like gender narratives too. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, the, you know, you said this could be done in two or other people might've done it in two, but they, they give it more time. And I think that, uh, I think I, I agree. I don't think it necessarily needed four, Yeah, but, um, I, I actually, I have some issues with how they structured it because it's very deliberate and they start with, um, like the first episode is almost like on John's side. Yes, it right? is. Right? And yeah. then then as you like you follow the the trajectory that like the evidence sort of takes, you know, where more stuff comes out and then they just keep revealing the layers of horribleness to uh to John Wayne uh, Bobbitt as as the documentary goes along and it's it's frustrating <laughs> like like how did they like because they i guess the the first trial limited the scope so they couldn't discuss previous abuse mm-hmm. which is just crazy to think about now and i'm so glad <laughs> that is no longer the case usually hopefully in these types of trials but um like the the idea that there's like questions about whether he was abusive in, in that first trial. And then, like, you see, like, in the second episode, already by the second episode, there's, like, oh, yeah, no, years of abuse. Plenty of documentation of, like, physical bruising and, like, and like going to the hospital and, like, physical evidence of 
this well-documented abuse. Um, it's just, it's just crazy. And then by the end of the, the, the documentary, right at the end, they throw in this other context for, for John Wayne. Um, the fact that he comes from a household of abuse and he, he and his brothers were sexually abused and physically abused and undoubtedly emotionally abused, like for years in their childhood to to leave that as like a twist reveal at the end is frustrating. I think that like the, it could have been so much more interesting <laughs> if they actually wanted to examine that and how that shapes and how this lack of discussion around abuse and like f- feeds into a larger narrative. It's like the, the this document is really looking at like sort of um it, it places this case um as part of what motivated a larger interest and awareness about domestic violence. And I mean, they just recently was like Minnesota or some, there was a state that only just like in the last month made marital rape illegal, you know, actually they said, yeah, no, that counts as rape too. Um, So still we're having trouble with some of these issues in 2019, but um, you know, it's very, the, the the this documentary is really very focused on the the dangers and the 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 violence that comes with spousal abuse and domestic abuse, and so then at the very end to be like oh also child abuse is bad and that probably was part of what caused all of this um, and not getting help and not you know and and putting that that background in with someone who is violent and seeks domination like over other people. It all feeds each other, you know? So like there's, so there's some, I had some frustrations with how this documentary was structured. Why spend an entire episode basically on John's side? It just feels very disingenuous or it's not disingenuous. It's very intentional. And it's trying to like take you along with the journey that the American people theoretically took or should have taken as as more evidence came to light. Like, I get it. I get what they're doing. But they spend a whole episode on that, and then they spend five minutes on, oh, also, I, you know, I come from a background of horrible trauma on the, at the hands of my family, which is just a very different kind of domestic abuse. Um, yeah, it's just, it's interesting. Um, so there's a lot that I really liked about it, but I, I had I had a lot of trouble when we got to the end that, 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 at the overall, after seeing everything, like this is how you structure it. Did you have any trouble with that or is that just me? No, I don't think it's just you. I think that there's, I think that structurally we're supposed to treat that reveal as sort of the capstone. And I think that we're supposed to see it as not maybe necessarily, because I think that the way that it gets framed and the way that Wayne Bobbitt talks about it. It feels um like a explanation slash excuse, mm-hmm. but it's also one that's difficult to sort of really allow to settle in, especially after they um juxtapose that reveal is preceded by the um discussion from Desiree. Um and that multiple day, multiple days of torture within that apartment near Niagara, mm-hmm. um, and I, I, I think that this show very much wants us to sort of see that 
um, discussion of his abuse as a child as sort of a way for him to feel victimized. Um, I'm not explaining this as well as I would like to. Um, So without necessarily to your point as engaging it so it feels like a yeah but me too also type of thing yeah um from his perspective and that the sh- that the show i think doesn't have a lot of sympathy for yeah and i think we're supposed to as a result not have a lot of sympathy for him due to this but the episode itself in which this is told to us is called the cycles of abuse and I think that to your point that there is value in doing even an additional hour about this aspect of it um, and exploring what that meant um, as opposed to sort of indirectly sort of pointing us in that direction of like retroactively reapplying that to this through line of Bobbitt going through these um deciding that to purvey and reprove his manhood after having it literally cut off it's like i'm on howard stern a lot i'm on a howard stern telethon i'm gonna do a couple of porns um and all of this sort of stuff i'm gonna be a greeter at the bunny ranch um this kind of thing um that he's supposed to keep trying to prove a manhoodness a masculinity after having that abused um as a child and then literally again removed um in the 90s but it just it it rings really hollow by the end is the problem and i'm not quite sure how much of that again is the documentary sort of wanting it to ring hollow or whether or not just the way in which it's placed prevents it from feeling as substantial as it maybe should because this like you said is something that we should also be thinking about within terms of how these things get perpetuated and i think that the series does a good job of creating a through line between this idea of masculinity getting this idea of 90s masculinity getting played out really strongly through bobbitt's actions post trials but it doesn't do a good job of making it clear about how that happened before that point. Yeah. Right until the end. And I think that that's a structural problem. Yeah. Well, it's just, um, you know, you could have more, I, for me, I guess what I would say is they should have more trust of the audience. Like we can hold the idea that, right. That John Wayne uh, and his brothers were horribly abused as children in our head, along with, and nothing excuses his his like dis, like like he should be in jail yes. <laughs> for his like his abusive women his torture of this other woman Desiree, um, which like I don't know how they weren't able to prove that. Um, that seems like you know I don't know how he's not in jail for that, but especially if you have a, a eyewitness of like her being dragged down a hallway by her hair. Um, anyways, that's a different question, but like. We can hold those two things in our mind at the same time, that this horrible thing happened to to him and should not have 
Uh, and clearly, she, well, I mean, it seems clear to me as I'm not a psychologist or, you know, any, I, I don't have any training in this, but it seems pretty obvious that that shaped a, like his entire life, yes. a big part of his life and who, who he became as a person and like which parts, you know, it's like you, you, the, whatever wolf you feed is the wolf that lives, you know, uh, personality. Um, and the irredeemable, unacceptable, you know, actions that he chose to take later on in his life. Like those, I can hold those two things at the same time in my head. And it it would have been a more interesting conversation to have instead of just throwing it in at the end. Um, yeah. Yeah. There's again, there's, it felt this at four hours, it felt too long, but then it also kind of feels like you, there's so much more you could have dived into that yes. they didn't. So it, it's an interesting contradiction there. But let's talk about some things they get right because the I you know I think that I'm trying to find the name that she goes by. Um, she goes by her maiden name now. Lorena does. Um, and I, uh, I, it's I, I Gallo Gallo. Yes, thank you, Lorena Gallo. Um, what they what it does get right is like she's terrific. Um, she's like, she does a really good job and they're also very sympathetic to her, of course. Um, but like the, the talking heads and the interview, like the interviews and then the ones that they get with John Wayne too, are also like really well done and really interesting. And he's like a surprisingly open book. I mean, he's also a terrible liar. You can tell when he's lying. Um, but like, it's really compelling interviews and uh really well done the the documentary footage that they get is overall i think really well done and the the way that they it, it feels very authentic like you do, you, obviously these are people who have been telling the story over and over again um for you know whenever people are interested uh for various reasons uh john john wayne wants to get you know obviously it's clear that he wants to get more um if he can get some financial benefit out of it he's gonna do it um if he can get some more notoriety out of it he's gonna do it and lorena is very actively um raising the public profile uh for domestic uh, abuse survivors and uh and the like she is a passionate advocate for uh, these topics as well. And, like I was surprised when we see that shot, the the footage of her with the Steve Harvey show, or you know, with Steve Harvey, and I was expecting that to be from longer ago. No, but it's yeah. not. And so it's clearly like they're very comfortable being on camera and talking about this stuff. But still, I, f- I felt like it was it was well. Those interviews were well, well were well done, and uh, I felt like they had the right balance of information from the time and perspective from now and like i thought that that was compelling and and not just with them but like the the one who gets me is the the salon uh patient like the salon customer yeah who we spent time with that was also a particularly compelling interview no it is um and it's compelling in part because she's very good on camera, but it's also compelling in part because it fits really snugly into that true crime narrative of a prosecutor going like, I can't use you, but go talk to this person and mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not going to ask you any questions uh, because I want to, I, I want to help Lorena and all of this sort of stuff. It feeds into that true crime narrative Um structure here really hardcore uh, but she is really good and as someone who like i was talking with my person a little bit about this because i'd watched a couple of episodes and then talked to her about them 
um, basically being like, I don't remember any of this. Like, you and I had talked about, um, like, our recollections of the OJ stuff, and a lot of the OJ stuff filtered down to me, but very little of this filtered down to me. And so a lot of this material was new, so um, her, but her in particular, the salon customer, was super new. And it was just really good. And it provided a... It provided a good outside perspective of someone who was really only tangentially connected to all this, as opposed to someone who had like sort of firsthand slash secondhand knowledge, like the two neighbors um, uh, who are just delightful um, in how they snipe at one another during the interviews. Um, but that this was someone who saw something was going wrong and wanted to help. And I really liked that aspect of it. Well, and also it's like that's us, right? Yes. That's our surrogate. Yes. And and it's also a really great reminder, especially now in our uh like everybody's got a smartphone, everybody's like a twenty four hour news cycle, if that, right? It's just like I was raising two kids. I was busy. I wasn't watching TV. I didn't see that this was happening. Like I didn't I heard about it, but like, you know, I was busy. And that's, I think it's, it's important to remember that that is the life of most people. You know, like when you look at the ratings for Fox News and MSNBC and, and like, and CNN, it like, it's actually not that many people compared to the population of the country. So it may feel like everybody's talking about, for example, this week, the Michael Cohen testimony, but really it's a small percentage. Of the overall population. Lots of people are too busy living their lives to follow all of this stuff. Um, and it, that was really striking to me, like, when she talked about just, like, folding laundry and just happening to look up and see that this was this person she had interacted with. And then immediately get she got in, engaged and involved and was trying to help. And, of course, she's the also the only one who talks about what's well, – maybe she needs therapy, for, clearly, Right anyone Bueller um the other thing that I thought was really interesting from this documentary was like the, there clearly was some uh like a, a falling out and disconnect I was like with, with Jana the boss but the yes. fact that one of the first thoughts was you need to get a media coordinator and she was right. <laughs> Lorena definitely needed a media coordinator. And things by the end, right, there had been a falling out and like that, that, that contract that she they did, didn't feel was appropriate. Right. The that the, the Jana and the media guy thought was yeah. was fine. And, and Lorena didn't. And I think that also spoke well to Lorena that she like didn't trash them as much as, you know, you many might have but it seems like for a long time it was actually a really positive thing and i can't imagine going through what she was going through without having somebody that she felt she could trust like for years uh managing that stuff uh so so the fact that there's like it early on like the you know people's court reality tv tabloid tv wave there was somebody savvy enough to be like you're also you're gonna need a lawyer and you're gonna need somebody to handle the press um, was really interesting, and I was like, it may not have ended well, but thank goodness she had someone at least at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. It that whole roller coaster was just a really. I appreciated the acknowledgement of it, and like this idea of a realization of the sort of the landscape that they were entering on like a mock macro level 
of mm-hmm. like this is this is what it is now you're going to be huge and you need this representation but also i'm going to maybe uh get a little bit of my own for this thank you please and that that is exactly how this happens i mean admittedly both of them end up getting taken advantage of in certain ways like bob it talks about like that um the producer um, oh yeah he got totally screwed over yeah yeah so they both because they just weren't either savvy enough or had savvy enough representation or just didn't think think it through enough that they fell victim to people who had a better concept of how things worked and how this landscape was shifting and that i that i think is also an interesting part of the show's emphasis on the media's role within all of this discourse Um, because i saw a couple of reviews um being like why are there so many clips in this and it's just like this is why because this is this helped pave the way for everything else yeah that we're in today yeah definitely um let's see are there any other elements of this that uh you'd like to dive in with like how did you feel about the the i mean like i loved those interviews with the neighbors and the different like I, the again the shift from the first episode to the second episode with those two guys that were like hanging out with John that thought he was so cool and then like by the next episode they're like no he was horrible and abusive that was very jarring yeah <laughs> um but other than that i like like the, those two neighbors with the dog i oh i loved it yeah no they were delightful i loved them um actually i think my question for you more so um is maybe less about like the show as a whole and more about um sort of a shift um that we're sort of like going through um with a legitimization of true crime narrative which is something that's always been considered some uh lower air quote um sort of genre of stuff like it's what it this is exactly how we sort of coming out of this particularly this historical precedent of tabloid type of news um but we're starting to treat them in a much more serious manner down to the fact that this is produced through jordan peele's monkey paws production jordan peele has an academy award the promotional aspect of uh lorena didn't hide that in fact they played it up so the fact that suddenly true crime is having this sort of legitimization moment of no it's valuable we need to we need to really explore it i'm curious about how you feel about that because we've done it with the oj um storyline but like um netflix is like has pushed really heavily into this podcasts have pushed really heavily into this the whole concept of npr well not npr but um um whoever handled um this american life handling serial um how 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 do you feel about that and that kind of transition that we're having what do you think it's saying if anything i think that you know there's been this wave of re-examinations of the 90s through this sort of form that have been really compelling and i think it's because uh, not necessarily speaking to the form as a whole, but speaking to the subgenre of examining societal trends and examining where we are now by 
re-examining the past. And I think that, I mean, I, I don't know what it's like for people who are older, who, you know, have strong recollections of the time, you know, who weren't kids when all this was going down. Um, but for me, it's been sort of crazy. Uh, and I keep using that word. I know I shouldn't use that word, but it's been really eye-opening to think back on some of the things you just kind of like took for granted. Mm-hmm. And then if, if, and then thinking about like who I am now as an adult, if I was experiencing that, and like if I got time traveled <laughs> and I didn't know what was going to happen to the past, I would just, if I was, if I still had grown up in the, in the post Lorena world and a post OJ world, right. And a post uh, Clarence Thomas needed Hill world. Um, and was, transplanted back into these events, I would just be looking around like, are you all crazy? This is like, we accepted this? This was okay? You could think of, I mean, also the the documentary uh, series on Lifetime, I think it was Lifetime, about the Monica Lewinsky and uh, Clinton scandal too. Um, And just being like, whoa, it's crazy making to, to, to see just how all these topics were handled at the time. And uh, like, you know, another thing that's been, you know, in a similar vein, really, like, again, crazy making to me is thinking about in our current uh, political world, thinking about that our current political world, and then thinking back to Nixon after he left office being pardoned. And like, like, when I was a kid growing up, it felt like, and even like, relatively recently, the past 10 years, it felt like, you know, there was there was a a, a difficult but smart choice to help the nation heal and now it's like oh that fucker <laughs> I can't believe like it's infuriating that he didn't serve jail time for all these things and he should have you know it, it, I think this reexamination of the past as a way of exploring the present is really valuable and absolutely deserves the legitimization that's been happening of that um, in over the past several years. Now, when it's true crime for the sake of true crime, where it's just like, let's look at this case and see if it, you know, we can solve it. Or if, you know, the, the high profile thing, let's really dive in with the specifics of the case. For that to work, it's got to be a really compelling case. Um, it's, you know, it's got to be something like the jinx, right, where you have just a very compelling central figure you're interviewing. Um, but most of the time, I'm like, is this going to give me new perspective on what happened then or what's happening now? If not, I'm way less interested. And I think that's part of why these have been so high profile and so successful is that it's been tapping into more larger decades long generational trends and uh, and and really you know layering a lot more on top of 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 these different true crime narratives cuz and, and it's not even layering on top of it's more examining the motivations behind and really you know carving away what seems like the 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 central like the i the basic idea right this if for Lorena it's this idea of men responding with how like this is the worst thing that could possibly happen and women responding with what did he do to make her do that you know just like starting at that point and then diving in deeper you know that that difference in reaction and connecting that with the Me Too movement with Times Up right now and along with this the trends in um in the criminal justice uh, pro, criminal justice system in this country and, and how we look at abuse and how we look at the other topics as well. But trying to get to a point of 
connection. I think that is really terrific storytelling if you can get to it. And I think it's great that it's that it's more um, high profile, I guess, and more prestigious as long as it's done well. <laughs> does that make sense? It does. Yeah, no, it makes perfect sense. Thank you for thank you for providing like an answer on that, because I was thinking about that a lot while I was watching this. Um, and I like your particular point about like examining cold cases, because I was trying to think back to, oh, some cold case that CBS did a special on um, like two summers ago that just fell completely flat. Um well, I think of like the Jean Benet Ramsey case, for example. Yeah. Every now and again, that gets trotted back out. And I know that there are some people who are really compelled by that story. But until there's more information, until there's a new like perspective to approach it with, it just feels like either re traumatizing a family mm-hmm. or uh, giving money to people who killed their kid, depending yeah. on your pers- perspective on what happened. Yeah. No, that's super fair. That's super fair. Uh, do you have any final thoughts on this? I guess, yeah. For my last thought, um, what can you think of? Is what do you think we're going to be looking back at twenty years from now and saying, "Can you believe blank like like the Black Lives Matter movement and the fact that people were considering or currently consider that like a hate group because for some." You know, well, for racist reasons, but for various reasons. Like, what what do you think is going to be the thing that we look back at 10 years, 20 years from now and just can't believe the way that we as a society were responding? Oh, um, I mean, we're sort of like, be. it's weird because we, I feel like we sort of like go through these anyway now, because um, I definitely think that like, we're, we're like, we're already like, uh, going through that with like me too to a certain extent of quick turnaround doc uh docs from like frontline on weinstein um and so that is what i think we'll probably see but we're also like litigating them and relitigating them almost immediately as we talk about like actors or folks trying to get a second chance or even this one where we have charlie rose talking to someone in a club oh, yeah. about and it's just like Oh, this is, this is, this is not aged well. <laughs> well, and I love that they include that, but don't feel the need to underline. No, they don't who's have in to. these interviews. You know, yeah. that's great. So I, I feel like that that's something, but I mean, that we'll probably like really tap into in like probably in five years, um, not even ten because ten to fifteen because we just have all of this material now in a way that wasn't needed to be collected and put together from like a 90s perspective but now it's like all here and it's it's difficult to like kind of look back at it and try look look forward in this sense from now and go like this is what it's going to be um and i also can't think of like a tabloid sort of esque story that would be drawn today either um yeah there's just so many of There's them. There's too many of them now. Yeah, you need the distance to yeah. to be able to, you know, pick one out. That's true. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's interesting. Well, I'm glad uh, that uh, that these documentaries are being made. I think this is a well done one. I think people are interested or curious. They should seek it out. Um, and uh, you know, I've, I, like I said, I've got some some issues with it, but I think on the whole, it's well done. And uh, this has been a lovely conversation. So thank you. It has. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, a few show notes here at the end of the episode. You can find a post for this episode over at theteleverse.org, where you can leave us a comment and let us know what you thought of the week's TV. You can like our page on Facebook, start up a conversation there. You can also find us in iTunes with an M4A chaptered feed and an MP3 unchaptered feed. We'd appreciate ratings and reviews both there and over at Stitcher where you can find the M4A feed. And then of course we are both on Twitter. I am at the Televerse and Noel, you are? At Noel RK. Thank you so much, Kate. Thank you so much. Enjoy Atlanta. Try to. Try to you know find a air conditioned space with less humidity. I will try. <laughs> Enjoy the bookstore. <laughs> uh, we'll be back next week everyone with another episode of the Televerse.